Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 93, Antiheroes, recorded Thursday, August 25th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? Uh, all right. Kind of a warm, sweaty week at work. It's been very summery l- last couple of days. How are you doing? Well, I mean, I live in the South, so it's <laughs> been very summery is kind of an understatement, especially since my car doesn't have air conditioning. Uh-huh. Uh, eh, I just roll the windows down. It's fine. I mean, I'm not driving around at noon, you know? So. Yeah. Uh, but it's overall, it's been pretty good. Some computer difficulties, but I have those temporarily sorted out at least until Microsoft can bother to put out driver updates after their anniversary update. Yes, I'm calling them out. So, <laughs> well, you've got a you've got a physical cable strung right now, which will give you better performance, but not maybe better home aesthetics. No, having a 75-foot cable run literally down the middle of my house to get to my computer with two small children is not the best, no. 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 But, technical problems aside, unfixable technical problems because I don't write driver software, uh, (laughs) things are going reasonably well. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Well, tell you what, let's go ahead and get straight into our Patreon backer question here. All right. You ready? Yep. Roll that die. Okay, that is from Evan Ringo. All right. Okay, so Evan and his question here. Would playing a game meant to explore the life of a prophet or even Jesus himself be considered idolatry? And is that in any way a worthwhile idea? Okay, I'm going to say right off the bat, not idolatry, but possibly sacrilege based on the way that you interpret this yes yeah there's no worship here uh, of something that isn't god yeah um sacrilegious because it's it's reducing something holy uh down to something earthly potentially i i would say that my take on this um i think trying to play jesus uh, as a character would be going too far. Yeah, I wouldn't go near that with a 10-foot pole. I would jump at the chance to play a prophet, though. Well, I would actually go a little further. Okay. If you are trying to explore the life of Jesus, having a parallel story is not necessarily bad. This is kind of a common storytelling trope, right? Yeah, definitely. Characters set in that biblical era, in the time of Jesus, who have a life that parallels Christ's in some way and kind of faintly echoes some of what we see in Christ's life and in his teachings. So, I think that's okay. I mean, Monty Python pulled that off. Yeah. You know? So... If you're trying to do it and do it seriously, I think that is... And Monty Python managed feasible. to be reverent and completely irreverent at the same time, which was weird. It, yes, they're very gifted satirists, let's just say that. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I think that's okay. Likewise, exploring the life of a prophet, I think, is entirely possible. You'll need to do a lot of research for a game like this, especially because it's not just what's in scripture that's going to really bring that game to life. You'll need to get all the details of life, of dress, of food, of culture, of who they're interacting with on a regular basis, because the land of Canaan, Israel there, is kind of a crossroads in a lot of ways. You have Persia and Babylon and Greece and Rome Assyria. and Egypt and well Assyria as well depending on the air all of this kind of depending on the era yeah, coming from the Fertile Crescent uh, and even some of the the steppe tribes um, from a little further northeast all kind of intersecting here so there's a lot the of the history that you read will not be boring I can promise you that oh yeah absolutely true but there's a lot going on in that time and I think to really pull that off, you'd have to understand a lot of history. Fun fact, System Mastery, which is a podcast I listen to quite a bit, recently did a review of the D20 Testament supplement. And their comment, and I have actually not read Testament. I, I, I have a copy. Okay, well, tell me if this sounds right. Because their review was basically, you know, there's a lot less religion in here and a lot more, hey, look, I'm a history major and I wrote a game. Yeah, that's fair. There is some religion in there, but they try to be egalitarian, I guess. As, you know, they, they try to make it so that it's possible to to not just play the <coughs> Abrahamic tradition. Okay. And that's about what uh, I got from that review as well. And, you know, kudos to the System Mastery guys. They, For two people who are not especially religious, they did a good job, I think, handling that Testament review quite fairly. I have that one queued up, but I have not gotten to it. You will enjoy it because, as always, Jeff and John are very funny. But, oh, they're hysterical. <laughs> um, anyway, I I would almost say you need to pick up something like that simply for all of the historical detail that a a game book like that that's designed to immerse you in that setting would have at your fingertips. Don't use the system because... Apparently, the system is just atrocious. Well, it's 3.0. Well, but it's not just 3.0. It's a really bad take on 3.0. Yeah. Because it's, hey... classes that are poorly <laughs> balanced and stuff. Yeah, apparently everything is incredibly underpowered. It's like, hey, you can be this really terrible class or a wizard. Wizards are totally fine, too. But why don't I just be a wizard? All right, cool. Why did you write all this? I don't know. So, there we are. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I have some to add to this, actually. Okay. Uh, I think there is some value, kind of going back to that C.S. Lewis quote that we have often quoted about the value of myth. Yeah. Where what you were saying about parallel characters, I think that might be the best way to handle this because it takes, first of all, you're not actually being sacrilegious, and it also takes some of the, I don't want to get the details wrong, off the table and lets you kind of explore takes the pressure off yeah it, it, it all of it or most of it at least i mean um you you look at the kids in the narnia books for instance and they're basically the apostles of that setting oh yeah absolutely so if you do something like that where you have 
some very allegorical characters. I think if you really want to explore this stuff, that's probably the way to go. I think it'll be easier. I think it'll be more rewarding. And I think it'll feel a lot less forced. Yeah. It'll it'll be more comfortable because you won't be worried about being sacrilegious. And you also won't be worried about not having, you know, read your history or scripture in enough depth. You won't feel as constrained in a multiple in multiple different ways. Yeah. I think also it lets you not be tied to a individual prophet. You can yes. kind of say, okay, if we're doing something like uh, judges or post-Isaiah prophets, you can just take the traits of all of those or several of those and combine them into one character because we know very little about these prophets as people. Yeah, we know more about kind of the impact that they had than about who they were. Right. And we know about the culture they came from, at least as much as we know anything about any ancient people, but we we don't know anything about personality. So taking bits and pieces and putting them together into a more complete character is probably going to get something better out of this, or at least give you a stronger foundation. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to choose between playing Nathan or Isaiah or Micah, you can just make a character who has traits of all three and off to the races you go. Sure. So that, I again, I, is it doable? Sure. Is it idolatrous? Uh, no. Is it sacrilegious? If you're not careful. I. That's, I think... Is it potentially valuable if handled properly? Probably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is it is it the kind of thing you would do in Sunday school as a kid a little bit, right? You can, you know, you want to get into that and you want to understand it and you want to role play out the impact of prophecy. I mean, yeah, I hate to say it. Something like this is not terribly dissimilar from, you know, a little Sunday school skit or play. It's just got more ad living and interaction. Yeah, and, and more power and depth to it, right? Yeah. The roleplay aspect of it is not so foreign that I think you would run afoul of, some, of something really bad unless you tried to bite off too much or really <laughs> got so into it you started inventing your own prophecy. But at the, I, I suspect it would be very easy to stop well before that. Yeah. So... There you I go, do think Evan. that would be a very challenging role-playing um, task. Yes, no question of that. But um, to answer the, the last part of that question explicitly, worthwhile? Absolutely, just 100%. Yep. So there you go, Evan, good question. Obviously, <laughs> we had a lot more to say about that than I think either of us thought. Uh, yeah. Thank you. If you want your question answered, just uh, back us on Patreon Anyone who backs at the $5 level or higher gets to add a question to our question pool. We roll on it randomly at the beginning of every episode, and uh, once yours has been answered, you get to put in another one. So Yep, you keep your your uh, question slot full, and we'll keep going back to it, trying to, to answer your question. So we are always looking for uh, more patrons to help support us and grow the show. Um, you know, we, we're looking at 
putting those Patreon funds into things like webcams so that we can start doing some better video, um, some software to produce more content. And once we hit that $100 mark, we're about halfway there, $100 a month, we're going to start producing extra content on a regular basis. That's the commitment we made there. Right now, I'm kind of leaning towards a uh, like semi-weekly uh, video game stream. We'll see kind of how that goes. It might be just me. It might be just Peter. It might be me and Peter working together on stuff. We'll figure it out, but we'll make it pretty cool, whatever it is. And it uh, wouldn't now that... be hard to arm twist me into writing a few more blog entries either, so... No, definitely not. I honestly need to start writing up more game <laughs> recaps because yeah, we've had a couple do. of really good I game have sessions. have a great writing style. So well, Thank you. I don't know. I'll try and make that happen. Maybe next time. We'll see. But... I like reading your stuff, so... <laughs> there we go. That's one person anyway. Anyway, we should probably get into our scripture and stuff, shouldn't we? We should. But one last note. If you don't want to back us on Patreon... Do take a minute to rate and review our show on iTunes, to share us out on social media, especially sharing us out on social media. That helps us quite a bit. You know, getting the word out about our show gets new listeners, and if you like it, probably the people who you are friends with will at least find it interesting. So, hey, there we go. And then you'll have something to talk with your friends about. And that's great. Yeah. Okay. Let's do get onto our scripture, shall we? Sure. You want to take this first one, or yeah, do you want I'll me to? Yeah, I'll take this first one. All right, this is Judges 3, verses 15 through 21. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his ascendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. And our second bit of scripture is from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 55 to 61. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So our topic tonight is anti-heroes. And it bears mentioning that this is the first of our uh, Patreon backer voted topics. 
Yes, uh, this we'll be doing another one because there was a tie next episode. But this is chosen by our Patreon backers. If you for those uh, donating ten dollars or more, you get to vote on uh, a set of topics, rank them in order of your preference, and we tally those up and determine what comes out on top. And antiheroes and epic monsters uh, tied, so we're doing antiheroes first here. So let's talk about antiheroes for a minute. This is a term that first appears in 18th century works, although the archetype goes back as far as Homer, in Western literature at least. When we talk about an antihero, we are talking about a protagonist character, and that's important, this is a protagonist, who does not have some critical heroic trait, but remains a protagonist. Typically, I think we view these probably as a result of you know, Frank Miller, honestly. Um, <laughs> we typically view these as amoral misfits, right? They're often more than that, although the archetype certainly rings true for a reason. But like I said, they're, they're lacking common heroic attributes. They may be cowardly. They may not be intelligent. They may be inclined to violence. They may be unjust. Uh, they may not be kind. There are all sorts of different things that are, are lacking from an anti-hero. They may be all of these and still somehow manage to be the protagonist of the story we are reading about who, and this is important, the anti-hero generally speaking is, despite their flaws, not just the protagonist of a story, but the protagonist of a story who accomplishes something good. They accomplish a heroic deed in some way, for some definition of heroic here, without being heroic characters. This seems like the sort of thing that's going to benefit from some examples. Yeah, it does. And I do want to stress, we're, we're coming up with some examples here that are not the typical dark and brooding. Well, there's uh, one or two, but... Well, there's, there's a couple, but... I'm trying to branch out from that. And you'll kind of note that there's a whole spectrum of anti-heroes that we're going to talk about just in terms of examples. If you go out to like the Wikipedia article for this or uh, the TV Tropes article, there's, as always, tons and tons of sample characters. And I spe suspect that you'll look at them very often and say, why is that an anti-hero? And it takes a minute to think about it and say, oh, yeah. Yeah, despite the fact that they fulfill the hero's function in a story... They are not the heroic type. Ultimately, that's the definition of an anti-hero. But let's let's run through some examples. My personal favorite, just to start us off, is Rincewind from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Rincewind, uh, for those who have not read it, is a, a very cowardly wizard who almost also never terrible at being a wizard. He is a terrible wizard. He does not have talent in that area. Uh, he is a very fast runner because he has spent a great deal of time running from things. Uh, but that's about his only trait. He is kind, although not always brave enough to live up to the kindness he wishes he could exhibit. And he rarely succeeds on his own merits at all, to be honest. Nonetheless, he is the hero of a great many of Terry Pratchett's stories. Well, the and protagonist, that... is, as you say. Well, but also the the hero. He fulfills the hero's role. He bring not only does he do the protagonism, but 
he he steps into that heroic role when nobody else would quite fit. Yeah. That's why he works so well and why we still cheer for him even though he is not as heroic a, as some of Pratchett's other characters like Carrot or Cohen or Vimes yeah. or Granny Weatherwax. Exactly. He is a pitiable hero, which is very much a definition of an anti-hero, I yeah. think. The second Maybe a little more obscure, certainly not very geeky. This is uh, Raskolnikov from Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Now, if you have not read it, you really do need to read Crime and Punishment. It is not a very long book, and it's a very striking, very powerful novel. Uh, Raskolnikov starts off, and this is not particularly spoilery, starts off murdering a man. Because despite the fact that he's not particularly special, he has convinced himself that he is special. A very exceptional man, and exceptional men should be free from the constraints of the law. Hooray. <laughs> so, it, it's very close to delusional. <laughs> Certainly he has talked himself into, and logicked himself into, a place where he's doing terrible deeds. But he is still the protagonist of crime and punishment. He moves the plot along himself, carries most of it, to be honest. Um, and Dostoevsky does a good job staying inside his head and making us hope that he gets his just desserts and hope that he redeems himself all at the same time. You want to take the next one? Sure. Uh, Sherlock Holmes actually is uh, an anti-hero. Right. Um, now, very close to the heroic into the scale, but yes. has some anti-heroic traits. Yeah, he tends to be kind of a jerk, <laughs> to summarize it. Uh, Sharp-tongued, yeah, yeah. snide, elitist, self-involved. Uh, he's depicted as having a drug habit in some of the works. I mean, he's mm -hmm. he, he's definitely got a few flaws on him, despite the fact that he's brilliant and very good at solving crimes. Sure, and even his intelligence is occasionally called out as an anti-heroic trait in a study in Scarlet, which admittedly is, you know, the first Holmes story. There's this great scene where Watson realizes that Holmes does not know whether the earth revolves around the sun or the sun revolves around the earth. And Holmes kind of blithely says, well, now that I've learned it, I'm going to forget that because that's not relevant to my, you know, limited, restricted interest. <laughs> I mean, Holmes is almost autistic in some ways in that he focuses so hard on this one thing that he doesn't really learn or do or care about anything else. I think uh, he's actually depicted as being on the spectrum in some of the more modern interpretations of him. Some of the modern ones, yes. Holmes, there have been so many takes on Holmes that you can find very heroic and very anti-heroic takes on him. <laughs> and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. I'd kind of like to take this next one, too. Of course. Go ahead. All right. And this is probably the art, the one that everybody thinks of. This is good old <laughs> yep. Frank Castle, the Punisher. Uh, oh, Also yeah. known as the walking myth of redemptive violence, if you ask our friend Derek White. And by the way, I agree with him on this. Yeah. You would be hard-pressed to find a more blood-soaked, callous, and vicious person that's still portrayed as being on the side of the good guys in pretty much any comic universe ever. Uh, mm -hmm. He is... I think probably the the thing that sums him up the best is in... I believe it was the Welcome Back Frank storyline. 
somebody a kid i believe asks him why he does you know why he's killing criminals all the time and his response is because i hate them and she responds with oh i thought something to the effect of oh i thought it was to you know protect good or innocent people and he just stares at her silently and walks away yeah that's the punisher it is he, he cares only about vengeance he is cruel he is amoral and yet you know he is depicted as being on the side of the good guys at least some of the time well what I, have we talked about he performs the duties of a hero in that he is fighting against bad people and bad things right yep C- clearly the antagonists in a punisher story are worse than he is yeah in many ways right which i frankly think is a high bar but uh it yeah it is that's... a high bar although john travolta pulled it off really well yeah in the movie uh whichever fairly recent one it was and he's usually uh up against like the kingpin isn't he oh he's is been the... up against all kinds of bad people serial killers russian mobsters italian mobsters mobsters of various ethnicities and no ethnicities uh fair enough super I... villains i mean they've, they've I... put him up against everybody i have a confession for you i have not actually read any comics involving the punisher i have have, only read a couple and that was enough (laughs) well i have only seen a couple of the punisher movies i think they've only made a total of three so Uh, i think i've seen two of them and um the spider-man cartoon from the 90s ah so there you go as far as i'm concerned the thomas jane movie will tell you everything you need to know about the character and then you can stop yeah i mean it's a decent movie don't get it is a decent movie but but I like my heroes a little more heroic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So here's a different kind of anti-hero. Arthur Dent from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Talk about somebody who's very different from Frank Castle. Yeah, very different. He is not violent. He is not cruel. He is not obsessed. He really just kind of wants to go home and is out of his element and is a rather boring person. Yeah, he's just kind of a dude. He's, yeah, he abides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, mixing our movie metaphors. Oh, anyway. He, he's somewhat <laughs> clumsy and uh, not very good with women. All of these are unheroic traits. He is an anti-hero. But again, in the story, he steps into that heroic vacancy, if you will, and is the protagonist of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the plot follows him for a reason, because that's where things are going. Plot being perhaps a bit loose in Hitchhiker's Guide, but you get the drift, I think. Yeah, the the general flow of the story follows him at any rate. Exactly. You want to take Ehud? Describe him a little? since I I picked out this verse. So, Ehud is a little underhanded for somebody from his... uh, his era, and he's kind of unique in this list in that he is the only person that isn't explicitly fictional. Uh, he's a judge from the Book of Judges, and um, yeah, not the, his whole assassination thing that he did is not exactly how they praised you for being back then. Uh, you were kind of it, that was that was just kind of not how things were done. So he would have been seen as a bit less than heroic at the time, I believe. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> Uh, the last one that we at least 
have listed here. And again, there are hundreds of these, maybe thousands in literature and movies and TV shows all across many different cultures. But the one that came to mind for me was Vegeta from Akira Toriyama's Dragon Ball Z series. Vegeta is a very angry person. He starts off as a villain. Uh, He's angry. He's always willing to resort to violence. He is an unwilling father at the start. Now, he does go through a redemptive arc where he really becomes a pretty decent father and is shown to care a great deal about people and hides it behind these, these traits. But he's still angry. He's still violent. He's still rude. He's you know, very much revenge-driven. He is not a particularly smart fighter in a lot of ways. And so he can never step into the hero role. He's always an anti-hero. And we're going to talk about anti-heroes as foils in a little bit. Vegeta's a good example of this because he is a foil for the main heroic characters of Goku and Gohan in... Dragon Ball Z. Okay. I have never actually watched any Dragon Ball Z, so he's just kind of a ball of fury that actually becomes a character later, huh? Uh, pretty much. You He also turns into a giant monkey. That's exciting. Um, <laughs> I mean, very anime. O- only for a little bit. Also uh, a very I, anime. <laughs> I have some suggestions for you on how to get into it. Not all of it is necessarily worth watching, Certain parts of it are, and there are some abridged versions that, if you can stand foul language, are well worth watching because they're extremely funny. Well, I I do listen to System Mastery on occasion, so... We'll talk after the show. (laughs) Let's just say that. To be fair, though, Grant, um, and I'm fine having this be on the record, my backlog of other media is so big, I think Dragon Ball Z is fairly far down the list. Okay. I can probably change your mind. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, like I said, these characters move around on the spectrum. Okay. Uh, the Punisher is, you know, he starts off very terrible. In some stories, he's a straight up villain. In other stories, he's as close as you're going to get him to a hero. Yeah. You know, like I said, Vegeta starts off as a villain, slides through anti-hero, and kind of ends up doing the heroic sacrifice thing. So... Well, and Rincewind is, you know, he starts out, like you said, as this pitiable kind of cowardly little figure, but he does accomplish some great things. He does. And it's somewhat by accident, but he does do it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's totally okay for characters to slide around like that. Yeah. I also want to stress that anti-heroes and heroes alike can have flaws. Okay. The flawed hero is an archetype. It is not quite the same archetype as the anti-hero. And this is kind of subtle, but it it's worth talking about briefly. The flawed hero either is a hero except for this flaw, which makes his end tragic. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of Hercules. Uh, yeah. The ac- Greek mythic figure who, because of his flaws, ends up you know, killing a, a number of people and then dying as a result of that. Basically, kind of a, a karmic sort of death. That's how he meets his end. And that's not uncommon among many Greek figures. But he is still a 
hero in all the best senses because that flaw is something that he overcomes through most of his heroic travels and journeys and stories. Whereas an anti-hero does not overcome any of their flaws. They revel in the flaws. Occasionally they succeed despite those flaws, but they never overcome the flaw. Holmes never attempts to overcome the fact that he is sharp-tongued or elitist. He just is. You know, Rincewind never does much to try and not be cowardly. Occasionally he does, and that's when he steps into that heroic moment, but then he slips right back out of it. Frank Castle succeeds despite the fact that he is a murderous antisocial vigilante. Yeah. And in many ways he revels in the fact that he is a murderous antisocial vigilante. He just, that's the, he's steeped in that, and he's come to love it in his own dark, twisted way. This sort of thing, by the way, is why Batman is sometimes a hero and sometimes an anti-hero. Yes. I would say that the versions where he is voiced by Kevin Conroy, to be a little bit flip about it, are the times when he is heroic. Because the versions that you see in the animated series or the Arkham games, he has his problems, but he is fully a hero. He is compassionate, he is empathetic, but... He's and he, you know, he's obviously courageous and intelligent and resourceful and all of the other things that Batman always is. Right. Most uh, Justice League stories as well. Yeah. Because there's not a whole lot of room for him as anti-hero. Except for the one where the bad guys get a hold of his plans to deal with the rest of the Justice League. But Uh, I don't think that's him being an anti-hero. I think. We it's, can have a, a debate about that, but, but let me finish. Yeah. What, and then Sorry, go maybe ahead. we can have yeah. that debate. So in those versions, he has his issues. He seems somewhat aware of them. You know, he has these these genuinely good sides and he's just a little grumpy because Batman has seen a lot of stuff. Batman has been through a lot of stuff and he continues to put himself through more and more stuff. So people don't have to go through the stuff that he's gone through in right. the versions voiced by Kevin Conroy. Yep. In some of the other ones, like, for instance, oh, I don't know, the Christian Bale version, he is much more anti-heroic because there is nothing to him except for him going out and smacking criminals around. His identity as Bruce Wayne, even the philanthropy and stuff that he does in there, instead of being genuine as it's presented in the animated series or the Arkham games is just more of a smokescreen to make it less likely that people discover who he actually is. Yeah. Agreed. And he seems to have no interest in dealing with his issues and much like Frank Castle just kind of revels in them. He, you know, he uses torture. He is completely uh, condescending and um, dismissive towards anybody who seeks to emulate him. He is not a great dude. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so you were going to say that you don't think the uh, the series, which I I'm sorry, I forget the name, where the bad guys get a hold of his contingency plans for taking out the rest of the Justice League and use them. You don't think he's being anti-heroic in that for having all of those? I don't. That level of paranoia is not very heroic. That's true, but it's not presented as paranoia. It's presented as 
these are, because remember, it's not these superheroes will turn on us. It's, there's mind control out there. There are, you know, you can easily be confused. Right. There's parallel universe versions of these people that might not necessarily be good. Right. And in fact, they fought them before, right? The the, uh, Justice Lords. And so it's important for him to have contingency plans. And remember, his original plans were to disable Right. The, them rather than kill them, hurt them, etc. Right. Yeah. And so I I think this is a case of I have made a mistake and I am recovering for it. And he takes the burden of that on himself. OK. Yeah. He's I'll not that. reveling in it. He defends himself, but he also then immediately says, this is a problem I need to fix. Yeah. You could if he had presented the the whole thing in a different way where it was, look, you know, I can't trust any of you. Maybe we kind of lean a little bit more towards anti-hero. Well, and to pull from um, the gumshoe system a little bit, a big part of Batman's heroic thing is his unbelievable preparedness score. Yes. So, <laughs> and that is in keeping and that is a heroic trait. Yeah. Right. Being that goes prepared. all the way back to, um, uh, Odysseus, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's kind of the the original archetype that Batman-like characters come from. Just this incredibly right. resourceful hero. Sure. Although Odysseus occasionally also slips into that anti-hero role. Oh, yeah, he sure does. So, you know, there you go. Let's talk a little bit about anti-heroes in games as opposed to other media. <laughs> Since, right. you know, gaming podcast and all. Yeah. I mentioned before the anti-hero characters are often a dramatic foil. Let's talk about that a little more. Yeah. Because this is a really easy way to use anti-hero NPCs. This it is certainly not is. necessarily something you want to have a PC do all the time, because anti-heroes, eh, they can get kind of stale. Let's be honest. And they it can is... get fatiguing to play. Yes. But I think more the stale aspect of it is why you might want to create an NPC for a foil role rather than asking a PC to step into that role. Yeah. The anti-hero, especially the brooding, sulking, I'm dark and grim and grim and dark because I don't know anything else type, that's boring. It can get boring very quickly. And Okay, yes, you're rolling dice and hitting things and being cruel. There's a reason evil campaigns don't go very long. And an evil campaign where you're pretending to be good just, you know, broken in some way, does not go much longer. It's not much better. But having a character in the game who pushes your characters, pushes your player characters, pushes the limits of what they'll do, pushes them and says, how low will you stoop? Will you fall to my level? Putting that in there gives your player characters a chance to be heroic in contrast. If you have somebody casting a shadow that makes the light of the uh, player characters that much brighter. Two fantastic examples from fiction. Johnny Marcone from the Dresden Files, who is a somewhat honorable crime boss who keeps trying to manipulate or hire Harry Dresden and mm-hmm. functions as a foil for him in a lot Very of ways. True. Very I don't true. think I would want to read a whole book that starred Johnny Marcone, but he is fantastic for bringing out the... Uh, the more heroic aspects of Harry. Mm -hmm. And the other one, and this came up in my 
two types of paladin blog post that I wrote a while ago is the Templar NPC that you get in Diablo 3, particularly when you're playing as the Crusader, because it's such a direct contrast. You've got this one guy who is who you're playing who is very kind of sensible and sane and centered. And you've got this other guy who is this kind of insane wide-eyed zealot who is still pointed in the same general direction you are, but seems to have more issues than a newsstand. <laughs> yeah. And that makes a fantastic foil for the much more reserved and laid back Crusader because there's contrast there, like you said. Yeah. Uh, the Crusader is much more sober minded. And it extremely <laughs> I'll, I'll say this playing the Crusader and interacting with the Templar is the first. I'm not going to say the first time it was interesting that playing a Crusader interacting with that Templar character made me as the player of the game feel like the character I was playing was wise. Yeah, because it's a much more reasonable character than this other character they're interacting with. So it's a perfect case of a, a foil. The, the the line that will forever stick in my head from that game is, no, they left you empty, friend. Yeah. There's a lot of good scenes with them. Yeah. Um, now, it is worth pointing out that foil is not necessarily the same as anti-hero. Yes. Uh, two examples of this. Legolas and Gimli are foils for each other. Those are both straight-up heroes. Absolutely. And to go back to the Dresden Files, Michael Carpenter is also a foil for Harry Dresden, and you will... You would be hard-pressed to find somebody more heroic than Michael Carpenter yeah, exactly. in anything. Yep. Uh, completely true. And, yeah. and I think anytime you look at a party of characters in any good fantasy novel, you'll find foils for the main character who are entirely heroic and possibly a couple of anti-heroes as well. And contrasting those and seeing how they work together is perhaps a good way to come up with how an anti-hero PC or two could fit into your party. Yeah. The key thing, I think, for having anti-hero player characters is making sure the player character stays a protagonist. Yes. This is structural. Protagonists move the plot forward towards some resolution. The problem with an anti-hero, and... This is the same problem that evil campaigns have. And when I talk about evil campaigns, maybe people who are listening don't know what I'm talking about. Um, the evil campaign is kind of a gaming trope of, hey, let's take, you know, a D&D &D campaign and let's all play all the evil characters who are supposed to be the antagonists of the heroes and characters we're supposed to play, right? You know, hey, I'm going to play a... Uh, fallen Paladin, right? Blackguard. I'm going to yeah. play a necromancer. I'm going to play a vampire. I'm going to play, play an angry troll. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm just, you know, a straight up assassin. And the problem with that campaign is that it never goes anywhere. Ideally, in a campaign like that, you have some sort of redemption arc. Or, more challenging, but still possible, they are actual anti-heroes and they perform heroic actions but meet tragic ends that they deserve because they are still villains right they are so fatally flawed the problem is evil is pretty static and boring 
and you keep having to kind of do the same thing to show how evil you are. And so the campaign never goes anywhere because characters are wallowing in their anti-heroic nature, and instead of doing that and moving the plot forward, they wallow in their current circumstances, rather than taking action to change those circumstances. Anti-heroes often fall into the trap of doing the same thing. The Punisher is not trying to change his circumstances. He is wallowing in the never-ending stream of bad guys that he can take on in fundamentally the same way, right? The individual tactics might be new and creative, but there is no structural change to the, to the Punisher's situation. Yeah. Whereas, and that's an example of why the Punisher does not make a good player character, at least for a long-term campaign. Once again, this always comes with the caveat of if you're doing a one-off game, if you're doing a con game, if you're doing a quick interlude in the middle of your long-term campaign, all of these rules kind of go out the window because time is not really a consideration and you can just get in there, have fun with it as a one-off and be done. Okay. But for a long-term campaign, it's really hard to make your anti-hero continue to move the plot forward without... And not move forward at all themselves? Yeah, exactly. Because you kind of, not really, but kind of have two conflicting drives. Yeah, it's almost like if you're trying to move the character for or the plot forward without moving the character forward along with it, it's almost like the character has one foot anchored to the ground and the other one, you just keep trying to stretch them and stretch them and stretch them. And at some point, you're either going to tear the character in half or they're going to snap back. Right. Now, it is worth pointing out that when this is done successfully in literature and film, the results are memorable. Yeah. Right? Inigo uh, Montoya. I... He's very much an anti-hero at the beginning of that film. He is. I think he changes too much. He does. I think he goes through a redemption arc uh, okay. to say he is an anti-hero at the end of it. Um, yeah, I guess that's fair. I, thinking... I thought you were talking about the, the redemption arc specifically, but um, I, he's definitely an example of that. Well, Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon. Okay. Okay. The character of Sam Spade does not change, but the plot nonetheless moves forward. And the tension there is part of why that movie is so remarkably good and why people keep quoting it all the time. Right? All right. Well, as long as we're talking about film noir, Bud White and L.A. Confidential. Sure. He doesn't change at all. Really? I mean, he's still the same guy at the end of the movie, albeit a very injured version of himself. Um, right. But the, the plot definitely moves forward. <laughs> yeah. And he is certainly one of the protagonists of that movie. Yeah. Spike from Cowboy Bebop, to use an anime example, okay. is uh, a very classic anti-hero, and... He's also kind of in that flawed hero category, but he's got a lot of anti-heroic traits, and those come through very powerfully in that character, and it's very memorable for that reason. So that tension is a good thing, but it's difficult to pull off. An interesting example where the anti-hero is the antagonist rather than the protagonist is the inspector in Les Mis, who is yeah. always this very rigid, rule-abiding person, and ultimately... Sorry to spoil Les Mis, but 
kills himself at the end because he he can't reconcile an innocent man with his need to enforce every rule all the time. I'm not going to look right now because it would interrupt the podcast, but I kind of wonder if TV Tropes has an anti-villain page. Because that's kind of the same thing, right? A good it, it, guy who is nonetheless a protagonist. Yeah. Well, um, it, it, it he doesn't does, have and villainous if you're going to do a an antagonist who is a good guy, I would say um, Sam Gerard from The Fugitive is the archetype there. Oh yeah, totally beyond example. reproach, completely honest, absolute good guy, still hunting down an innocent man. Right, because he is the antagonist of that story. Yeah, exactly. Keeping your antihero from getting stale or annoying, or starting off stale and annoying. I think this is very tricky. Like I said, it's very difficult. But if you can pull that off, that makes for a successful anti-hero player character. How do we do that? It's going to, as always, depend on the game. But I think keeping careful track of what your character is trying to do and making sure that they continue to do that and have plot success that moves things forward while not changing over much is going to be your solution. Yeah. Now, because anti-heroes can tend to be dark, do be careful of lines and veils. It's kind of been a while since we've mentioned lines and veils, but don't use this anti-hero character as an excuse to uh, set off other players at the table who have issues with that. Yeah, if uh, you're I disturbing say, people out of game, you are going too far, is pretty much the lines and veils conversation. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't do it on, certainly on purpose. I mean, you're just a jerk. And if you do it on but, accident, stop immediately. Yeah, respect other people, respect their experiences, and if someone says, hey, this is over the line, you know, during or after the game, accept that and back off a little bit. And just be aware that these sorts of characters can sometimes be more, what's the word I'm looking for? Troublesome. They're, they're more prone to trigger those sorts of reactions. Yeah. I think we've talked a bit, and we kind of had this just in our outline, about the evil campaign and, ev you know, oh, I want to play the evil guy. Yeah, but sometimes I've even, okay, I've even seen this in just like what's supposed to be a heroic campaign where you get somebody who feels like, well, if I could just get at that stuff that's normally restricted to the game master, I would feel more secure in my position in the game. So I'm going to lobby for this dark antihero who gets to use like some of these evil spells or gets to play some kind of a monster that the rest of the the players aren't playing. So I have an edge. It's a form of power gaming. Now. Not everybody who has ever wanted to play one of those characters is doing that. Of course not. But that is an immature form of doing that that I have seen. Mm -hmm. And it also bears noting that I have seen and I hope played the mature version of this where that's not what you're doing at all. But that does happen. The whole teenage, oh, I want to play, you know, the the troll or whatever because he regenerates and, you know, they can go berserk and stuff. Well, Okay, that might seem awesome to you, but first of all, you're unbalancing the party. And second of all, to go back to what we just talked about, you run the risk if you're playing this utterly bloodthirsty character of starting to trot on people's lines and veils and just really be careful with this stuff. All the other problems, but you're right. Yeah. Sometimes, oh, I want to play an anti-hero is really, 
I want to play a character that isn't heroic at all because, A, I think it's cool, or because I don't know what an anti-hero actually is. And maybe that's honestly a lot of the problem, is people don't actually know what an anti-hero is versus what a jerk is. Yeah, well, and frankly, it's... (laughs) I mean, we've been spending a lot of time defining this throughout the episode. It's a somewhat nebulous concept. Right. Well, they they don't understand that anti-hero is a jerk who still moves the plot forward and cooperates with the game. As opposed to just a jerk. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) One other, I think, common thing, and again, this is where maybe the player wanting to play an anti-hero is not being self-aware. Do you really want to play an anti-hero? Are you trying to play an anti-heroic character from start to finish in this game? Or are you really saying, I want my character to go through some sort of narrative arc where they have a tragic fall because they are fatally flawed, but they are still heroic? Or I want this character who starts off as a flawed person to go through a redemption story, a redemptive arc, and end up a hero? Yeah. And sometimes it's easy to say, I want to start with this kind of character, and in the back of your head, you're kind of thinking, oh, by the end of the campaign, they'll be X or Y. But if you don't directly acknowledge that and communicate that to the game master... And possibly the other players, too. The GM's going to assume, well, you're just playing an anti-hero who's going to stay like this, and not give you the hooks you need to move that character in the desired narrative direction. I I think it's worth mentioning here that um, we have two characters that could be considered anti-heroes right now in our D&D game. I was thinking of that, yes. And it sounds from talking to the other players like both of them are looking to be much more heroic characters by the time this campaign is over. I think the fighter is looking to be a heroic character. I still don't yeah. know what my wife wants to do. Yeah. I'll be honest I, with I'm, you. I'm sure the fighter is looking to be a more heroic character. The the player playing that character has said so. Right. We've gotten a clear indication of that from them. Yeah. I suspect my wife would also like to kind of go through that, but she may be more comfortable in that anti-hero role. Having because... played multiple campaigns with your wife in our gaming group, I think she might go that way whether she intends to or not at the outset, your wife is kind of a heroic person just in general. That's true, but the character that she has come up with, she falls into that, I think, very common trap of, I have written a character, this is how they start, this is their backstory, and nothing can change. We've talked about the backstory trap before. She occasionally falls into that backstory trap. Now, it's something I need to work with her on and say, hey, where do you want your character to end up? And hopefully, as the game progresses, you guys are literally building a society in this game, and she is a very, not very social character, but her character thrives in that kind of environment, so I think we may see more development there. Okay, calling it now, alright? Publicly on on the podcast, calling it now. I think her character winds up becoming heroic in spite of herself, is how that goes. That's probably true. I also think she's going to end up in the stocks at least once. Yeah, I could see that too. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to try and make sure of that, but don't tell her. (laughs) Uh, Does she listen listen to to the podcast? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So glad. So very glad. 
watch. This is the one episode she's going to listen to. Oh, yeah. Totally. Of course. Okay. Or she'll we... hear you recording this part of it. Uh, no, I've got like two doors closed. Between oh, okay. Her and me. Thank well, goodness. You're, you're probably safe there. Is the I baby hope. monitor on? Does it transmit in both directions? No. <laughs> Whew. Okay, dodge that bullet. <laughs> anyway, I think we've officially run off the rails. Yeah, we're being goofy now. A little bit. One thing I do want to plug that I forgot to plug at the start of the show, and we will be more diligent about plugging in the future. Save Against Fear 2016. Yes, it's coming up. It is. This is Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, October 14th to 16th. Uh, If you go to warhorn.net, you can register, or saveagainstfear.com, I believe. This is the Badahana Group's annual fundraiser convention. It's a big gaming con. It's in a hotel and conference center in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania this year. And... The Bodana Group, for those who don't know, we've done fundraisers for them in the past. Most Christmas seasons we do one. And we had Jack Birkenstock on episode 25, way back when, to talk about what the Bodana Group does. They use role-playing games as cognitive therapy for children who have been sexually abused or are themselves sex abusers. So they're working with some very hurt kids and using role-playing games to give them a framework to address those issues and come up against those issues safely, right? Kind of abstracted a little bit through a game. Uh, we're also working with Bodana Group and Wheelhouse Workshop and Sarah Lynn Bowman and a couple other folks on our Game to Grow project, which uh, we're going to be probably soon, around the time this episode drops, although I'm not sure before or after, episode two of that will be out and you'll see that shared out on our social media feeds. Yep. But uh, if you are up in that Northeast mid-Atlantic area, give Save Against Fear a good look. It's a really cool convention that goes to support a really fantastic program. Spectacularly good cause. Yeah, I'm going to make certain to link episode 25 in the show notes. Search for it if for some reason I do not, because if you have not heard it, I think you will get a lot out of it. I would say that's probably one of our three best episodes that we've ever released, quite frankly. Probably. Also, Mike and Brandon were both hosts on that. Yeah. So it it had, I think, five people. It's the most we ever had on on Saving the Game. (laughs) So, you know, it's notable just for that, right? Yep. Uh, Yeah, but that's also a really fantastic episode. All right. That's officially where I think we should wrap this up. Anything else, Peter? No, I think I'm good here. Okay. Well, listen, from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.